John chapter 17 is our text for this morning, verses 6 through 8, 6 through 19. This is known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying for his disciples. Uh, many texts we could have gone to this morning, but I just, I appreciate and am uh, impacted, I guess, by what Jesus is focusing on in his prayer for his people, what's going to help them as they walk out uh, their days in this world. This is John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. Emphasis on verses kind of 16 and 17 and 18. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. This week we're looking at the second of our core values um, from Missio. We've spent a few weeks trying to explain our vision statement that I've already said this morning, but that we exist to glorify God by empowering all of Christ's people to worship him with all of their lives, giving every man, woman, and child a repeated opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. And we've worked through that. And now our core values underneath that are, are the undergirding of the why that is in our vision. That this is what we're going to be about because of these core values. These are four things that are kind of the bedrock of what we bank our lives upon, what we live upon uh, as, as a church together. Last week we spoke about the centrality of God, our four core values being God, truth, love, and mission. We talked about God being the supreme being. He is the center of everything. He is the, the one that we give our lives to. He is over it all. He is in charge of it all. God is the creator of, if we were doing a catechism, we might say 
God is the creator of everyone and everywhere. We might say something along those lines. And because God is the creator of everyone and everywhere, we then exist underneath and, in, and upon the reality of a God who is. Everything that is done is because he is worthy of all of our worship and he deserves all the glory. So this morning we're looking at our second core value of truth. Truth has always been at the heartbeat of Christianity. Our Savior himself says, John 14, 16, you haven't memorized fighter verses or other kids' programs. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus himself claims to be the truth. Um, Jesus says that God desires a people in John chapter 4 verse 24 he's talking to the woman at the well that God is a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth truth is a, a vital part a, a very important component of Christianity we are called to be people who are truth tellers Christianity is always prized. You can go, go back to the Ten Commandments, right? Do not lie. Do not bear false witness. Truth is to be at the very core of who we are. We are to be truth tellers. Uh, Paul commends the leaders in Christ's church at Corinth to conduct themselves with truthful speech. To speak truth. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. So when we hear these words from Jesus in his high priestly prayer, they aren't out of character at all that Jesus' prayer is that his people would be sanctified in God's word and his word which is truth. That this, the making holy of God's people or the, the separating them out for God is motivated by, is accomplished by his word which is capital T, truth. His word is truth. There is this real desire from Jesus that his followers would know him and that they would know him in truth. Something really consequential is being stated here regarding Christianity by this desire. That they would know him by truth. Christianity is not mere pragmatism. And like what, what gets kind of celebrated or what's desired in our world today, I think we could go around and think of many cases, is just what works. Like what works for you? And for many people, the pursuit of a religion is based just, just basically upon this reality. What works, works. And so if your spirituality, if your religious practice works for you, and by whatever terms we define works, like, I mean, it makes you moderately a more moral person by whatever means that is. And it gives you some sense of peace and happiness so that you feel like your life has worth and meaning. Then it works for you. And so you pursue religion from pragmatic kind of standpoints. Is it practically helpful to you? You know, if you pursue Buddhism or Hinduism or Wicca or, you know, agnosticism, any sort of just uh, secular humanism, if you pursue these avenues, if it works for you by making you a moderately better person, a decent individual in society, doesn't hurt anyone else, and gives you a sense of, I don't know, for warm fuzzies, then it must be good. It's okay. All right, so that Christianity, however, in contrast to that, is not about pragmatism. Jesus does not pray, God, whatever makes them feel better, give it to them. 
He says, sanctify them in your word, in which is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Christianity is not mere pragmatism. Christianity is not, is not valuable merely because it's pragmatic. Now, we could make the argument, and I think I would make the argument, that actually Christianity does like have a practical application and influence and help as we navigate this sinful world and this sinful life. But we hold that Christianity is valuable not because it's practical and pragmatic. We hold that Christianity is, is good and valuable because it's actually true. It's actually true. Who God is, who we are, who Jesus was as he walked the earth, what he accomplished in the giving of his life upon the cross, his resurrection, his bodily resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of the Father in the sending of the Holy Spirit, all of that is not just practical in some sort of a, here's a narrative, you know, and so this is what's done, and if you find that meaningful, then good. No, Christianity holds that that's valuable because it's actually true. <laughs> Jesus actually lived and died and accomplished these things. Not pragmatism, truth. So one of our values is not just that God exists, but that, there, that this is true, that God is a, a foundational value, but that truth is a foundational value. The worldview of Christianity claims that God really is there. And we can back this up with many arguments, you know, and if you're kind of a a nerd, you like to go through like the teleological argument, the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, and all, and there's a, the moral argument for the existence of God, and they're fun, and I love them, and I like to walk down them, I like to talk about them, they're all interesting arguments, but for a simple answer, we believe that God is there, and that he's actually spoken. Like Francis Schaeffer, you can get his book, that God who, God is, he is there and he is not silent. And the powerful arguments that he makes, that not only is God there, but in his mercy and his kindness, he reveals himself to us. You can go back to Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God. And what does God do? God says. Not only do we have a God who is there, but we have a God who in his mercy and his kindness tells us about himself. He reveals himself. And we have here in the pages of Scripture God's special revelation of himself. By his mercy and his grace, he has spoken in his word the Scriptures that have been recognized down through history as the inspired word of God given to us. God's people have had this text that they go to, that they refer back to, that tells them the truth about God. Not what is just practically beneficial for them. Though there are many practical and pragmatic good benefits. That is not what we ground ourselves upon. It is that this is actually true. God actually is. God is writing a narrative. God has begun it all. God is going to wrap it all up. And we bank ourselves upon the truth of his word. And so Jesus' prayer for his people is that God would do the work in their hearts of sanctifying them, setting them apart for him. Jesus says in this prayer in verse 14, it acknowledges, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. There's this recognition 
that the truth of God's word is going to be antithetical in many cases against the world and its views. That the truth of who God is is going to be against the world. Those who are in the world are going to hate those who hold to the truth. But the, the, the desire out of Jesus then is that they would be sanctified, set apart even more in his word, in the truth. There is a rebellion in the world against God's word and therefore God's people as they embrace this word. Yet Jesus prays not that they would be saved from the world, but sanctified by God's truth. That God's truth would do its work in their hearts as he opens their eyes to see it, as he floods the eyes of their heart with light, like that prayer in Ephesians, right? So that they can see the truth of God's word. So we are grounded upon truth. We live, we live in an age with so many different doctrines and dogmas. We, I mean, we don't, they aren't called that, but I think it's so easy to see. We, I think a very popular dogma we live with is what I call the, the doctrine, doctrine's dogma, the doctrine of resonance. Resonance. And what I mean by that is that so many people, what, what they will see as true is what resonates with them. And you'll see this on Facebook all the time. Somebody will post a meme about, I don't know, something, and they'll say, that really resonates with me. And they'll, they'll come to a meeting like this, and you, you'll hear these statements that I'm going to throw out. I'm preaching for 30 minutes, so I'm throwing out all kinds of stuff. And then what they'll say is that when he said this, that really resonated with me. Okay, all right. But the question is not if it resonates with you. The question is, is it true? <laughs> is it what God has said? Because if you've lived your life like I have, you've found many times things resonated with you that were incredibly the wrong decision. <laughs> or things resonated that were absolutely incorrect. But we live in our modern age that is very much curved in upon itself. This doctrine of resonance. And so I believe what feels right to me. Instead of what we want to hold to is I want to believe what is true. And how do we know what is true? We have a God who is there and he has spoken. He has revealed himself to us. So I want to go on just in our time. I mean, we could, we could go down all sorts of interesting philosophical discussions of worldview about this. But honestly, when we say we're standing upon the truths, what are, what are the truths that this word shares with us? This word, God has revealed to us first and foremost the truth about himself. This book is a book about God. This is not a book about you. You are not big enough to get a book this size. Sorry. <laughs> this is where I, people get mad at me. I'm, I'm trying to offend you a little bit, I guess. You, you, this book is not about you. It's about God, primarily. Who he is and what he has done in this world. The truth, the, the God's revealed to us the truth about himself. We must begin here. John Calvin and his institutes, when he starts in the first chapter, he's talking about these two revelations about knowing of God and knowing of self. And how the two really have got to go almost hand in hand. Like you can't really get an accurate picture of God if you don't have an accurate picture of yourself. And you can't really get an accurate picture of yourself if you can't get an accurate picture of God. They both have to be developed at sort of the same time. We're deficient in our culture today. We are deficient just in our fallen state. I won't, 
I won't wreck, or just try to rain on our culture's parade. Okay? It's been out throughout history. Our, 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 our sinful self, we are deficient in both areas, our view of God and our view of ourselves. What is the truth about God that the Bible reveals? Now, there are many attributes that we could walk through. Uh, Jan and I are memorizing... Now, now I shouldn't have said that because I can't think of the reference. It's 1 John 2. Uh, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love, right? And we all know, we've all heard the phrase, God is love, okay? So we can emphasize the attribute that God is love. There are many attributes like that we could walk through. We could talk about uh, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and we should. In fact, next week, Jim's going to talk about the love, of the love as one of our core values. But I'm persuaded that there is something particularly under-recognized in our culture today. Here I will kind of uh, talk about our culture a little bit. I think there is an attribute that is under-recognized in our culture today, a po- popular Christian culture we have lost the truth regarding the holiness of God. The holiness of God. We have lost this idea. We like to talk about the mercy of God, and we should. We like to talk about the love of God, and we should. The grace of God, and we should. But we don't like to talk so much about the terrible holiness of God. The frightening holiness of God. And the reason why we... we all of those arguments or those attributes of the mercy of God, the love of God, the, the grace of God, they all lose their weightiness when you diminish this holiness of God, the terrible, frightening reality of God. They lose, we talk about God's mercy and love and grace apart from his holiness, his righteousness, his absolute transcendence. They lose their weight. They lose their weight. They come from grandpa instead of the sovereign Lord of the universe. Uh, Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter, I think it's 6 verse 4. I don't have the reference down here. But he talks about, uh, chapter 6 verse 4, he calls God. Isaiah is there in the throne room. And the description of God is holy, holy, holy. Three times Isaiah says, here's the, 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 the angels around him crying out, holy, holy, holy. Holy, And if you read R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, and I recommend you do. It's on Audible. You can listen to it if you, don't, if you want to. But you, you read about, he, he, he brings up this reality. The Hebrew language would use repetition to a- emphasize things. So if there was a deep pit, it'd be called a pit pit. Like it's not just a pit, it's a pit pit. Or if Jesus is going to share the truth, he'll say, verily, verily, or truly, truly. Like, not just truly, but truly, truly, I say to you. And there'll be the repetition to give emphasis. And when it comes to God's holiness, he isn't the holy God. He isn't the holy, holy God. He's the holy, holy, holy God. God is righteous. God is sovereign. God is good and just and magnificent. We must not lose the terribleness of God. And I say that word intentionally to be like, wait a second. Why are we calling God terrible? Terrible probably not in its its popular usage. But the idea of that God is grand and astonishing and huge and worth marveling over. Uh, Susan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We read the C.S. Lewis 
books, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they talk about Aslan, and um, she's talking to Beaver there in the, uh, before they're going to go off to go to the, uh, before uh, Edmund sneaks away. But they're, they're talking about and being introduced to Aslan, and, and Susan's excited when she finds out that Aslan is a lion. She's like, oh, okay. I thought he'd be a really nice man. When you talk about this king, I thought he'd be a nice man, someone we could approach. And, and uh, I thought he was a man. And she asked Mr. Beaver, is he quite safe? She says, I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Beaver famously responds, he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so there's something about that, that, that just the ethos, the, the impressiveness with the majesty of God. We tame God down so much that his grace and mercy and love feel almost like rewards to him that he gets to love us when we lose the terrible truth, the awesome truth of the amazingness of God, the awesome terribleness of God. I don't mean like a bad movie or like some, some gory horror movie in some terrible way like that. I mean terrible like standing on the edge of a cliff. Like you ever go um, just anywhere that has a, a big drop off, several hundred feet, and stand on the edge of the cliff and it's breathtaking, right? It's beautiful. It's amazing to go to the Grand Canyon, but I mean even just to go down to the Lake of the Ozarks maybe or something and stand on the edge of a, of a huge precipice and feel the awesome terribleness of that. It's so big. It's so grand. If, you, if things went wrong, they would go really wrong <laughs> at the Grand Canyon. And so there's a sense of sobriety and smallness and greatness and caught up in the grandness of this moment. You ever stand on the beach at night? Like, if you ever get a chance to go to the ocean, I know we live in landlocked Iowa, so this illustration doesn't always work the best. But to go out, I mean, I remember one time we were at uh, Vero Beach in Florida, and it was, um, was it a nor'easter that was coming in or something? It was just, it, it basically that night it came in and it took all the sand off the beach and swept it out into the ocean. So that when you walk down the, the steps off to the, to the beach, uh, you could walk right out onto the, onto the beach. The next morning it was like an eight-foot drop. Like the, the waves just came in and just took all the ocean out. And you could go out there in the middle of the night with nothing but the moon and hear those waves come in and you thought, if I stepped off the edge of those steps, it's, it, was ma it was majestic, right? Have you, any, have you experienced things like this? Becky has. Great. I'm glad for you, Becky. <laughs> Moments like that where, oh, where it's just, there's this awesome terribleness. Like if things went wrong, oh man, watch out. Um, I carry the mail, and uh, I, I don't, thunderstorms, I, I love thunderstorms, uh, not getting wet. I don't like getting rained on. Let me, let me caveat that. I hate getting rained on walking around. But to walk around, and you maybe experience this, don't go to the beach, go out to a pasture here somewhere and stand on top of a hill and watch a thunderstorm roll in. And hear those booms and see the cracks of lightning. Feel the wind pick up. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And it's terrifying. Right? If this went wrong, it's going to go really wrong. We work too hard today to tame God. He's the transcendent Lord of the universe. To confront him on your own without a mediator, it is going to go bad. 
to be underneath his wrath and his justice and his judgment, it's going to go bad. Think Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel, right? And he sets up this altar, 1 Kings 18. He sets up this altar, puts the, the bowl on it, digs a trench, fills it full of water. Praise God, have mercy. And terrible fire comes down from the sky and it consumes everything. Water, bowl, wood, stones. That's the God of the Bible. He's incredible. He's awesome. He's terrifying to be found on the wrong side of this God. And we tame him down. The truth this Bible gives us is this God is huge, magnificent, holy, righteous, terrible to be facing him on your own. So we work too hard to tame him. The truth gives us a holy God. And so that brings us to a problem because God's word also gives us the truth about ourselves. It gives us the truth about God and it gives us the truth about ourselves. We, fallen human beings, Romans chapter 118 says that we actually work very hard to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We try hard. We want to suppress the truth. Part of the reality of the fall, according to Romans 1.18, is that we, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We try to make God less terrible. We try to make ourselves not so bad. God's not all that scary. And honestly, we're not too bad. <laughs> and if we can just kind of even those out, then God's love and mercy, it's like an equal trade. We'll love you, God. You love us. But the truth the scripture gives us is actually the rebellion of mankind that is coming under the just judgment of God. We have a huge problem. We like to confess, our culture likes to say, we're essentially good at heart. Not only is God not so awesome, we're actually pretty good ourselves. And these assertions talk about a doctrine of resonance. I mean, honestly, if I could come in here this morning, I could tell you, you know what? God isn't scary. God's, God, God's like your grandpa on a recliner who's just glad to see you. And you're not that bad, everybody. You're pretty good. You know, you're trying hard and God sees your heart. And boy, couldn't you find some resonance with that? It's like, hey, I like the sound of this place. But we're not about resonance. We're not about pragmatism. What does God's word tell us? And this is what it tells us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And it puts us then in a terrible position. Does not fit well with the doctrine of pragmatism or of resonance. In fact, how does this help us at all? <laughs> I mean, you can make, you know, it's like, okay, this is where I get in trouble. This is where everyone clocks out, okay? So if you've fallen asleep, wake back up at this point. <laughs> this is where I get in trouble. Like, this guy, all he does is talk about how great God is and how terrible we are. Because that's bad news. That is bad news. That is bad news for us. It puts us in a terrible uh, position. It might help us. In minor, minor ways, if we can walk out these doors legalists and we think, okay, we're going to try to be a little better, okay? And that's often what then church turns into, okay? We're just going to try to be a little better. Maybe it will produce in our hearts momentary and surface reforms. But that does not work when you're facing a holy and righteous God. So while we cannot compromise on these revealed truths, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, we must remember, remember this is the wake up, it is not the whole truth. It is not the whole truth. The truth, there is the truth about God, the truth about man. There is the truth about God's mission, the missio dei, the missio dei, the mission of God in the world to redeem a people back for himself. 
not because of their worthiness, but because of his love poured out through the work of his son upon the cross. The gospel, we've been working through Ephesians, right, in our Wednesday night time together. The God, Ephesians says in 1.8, it calls the gospel itself the word of truth. Truth about God, the truth about man, and the gospel is known as a word of truth. What the gospel does, uh, does not tell us, it doesn't tell us that God isn't that holy, not that scary. It's like, no, he is. It's just as righteous as he's, as he's ever been. The God that was there in Elijah's day is the same God today. It doesn't tell us that we're not so bad off. What it tells us is that a mediator has come. That, that God in his grace and mercy has sent his son, right, to take upon himself the terrible wrath that sinners deserve by giving his life upon the cross. Jesus absorbs the terribleness of God coming against sinners so that everyone, everyone in this room this morning, and let me be honest, everyone of your neighbors out there that you'll see as you go leave this place this morning, so that everyone hearing this good news, turning from their sin and from self and looking to Christ, can be delivered out from underneath the terrible wrath of God. That is the truth that this word gives us. God has done a great work. There's this great gulf between us. The ascending holiness of God, the depravity of man, there is in between them a mediator. It is not by diminishing the holiness of God or elevating the righteousness of man. It is saying that there is a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Could, could someone honestly just say amen to that? There is a Savior. No, the what we want to be about at Missio is the truth of the terrible awesomeness of God. The, the sad reality of honesty about who we are apart from God's grace. And because then it truly opens the door to let me share with you this incredible thing that God has done. The truth of the gospel of his work. He sent his son living the righteous life you should have lived. Dying the death that you deserve so that through repentance and faith in him... You can be forgiven of your sins, made righteous in his sight, and secured unto him. Not for pragmatic sake, but because it's true. Because it's true. In the pages of the Bible, we read the simple truth of John 3, 16, right? It gets thrown away because everyone knows it. But boy, don't throw that one away. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'll be honest. I do like the ring of the gospel. Truth at some point does become a balm. It does become the bread of life, the water that truly does satisfy. But embrace it not as an isolated comfort disconnected from the rest of what God has told us. It is embraced as the merciful and glorious truth regarding what God has done. The gospel is not a matter of your truth or of my truth as though those categories really even exist in a logical world. The, the gospel is the truth, told to us in the pages of God's truth, the Bible. Practically, pragmatically, God's word as the truth does impact us. It tells us that every neighbor that we have, every person in Ringo County is an image bearer and is deserving of our honor and care. And every image bearer is in desperate need of rescue from their sins. Loneliness and desire for longing abound in our community. 
You don't have to browse Facebook very long to see people dying for a tribe, someplace to belong, someplace of meaning. And the gospel, the word of truth, does give that. Practically, our own hearts um, do need checked by this truth. Our base motives are not trustworthy guides. What you instinctually feel is not always the right way to go. We have a standard of righteousness, and God has revealed it to us. But practically, the truth also does this. It strengthens us with hope in the face of dark days. We're told of an inheritance that is ours, will not fade away, and cannot be taken from us. And so even when this world does get hard, when sickness does come, when loved ones do die, when friendships dissolve, when we say goodbye to people that we'll never see again in this life, the truth does come as a balm in those days. That God has promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. God has promised to return and one day establish his kingdom where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow. When this world gets hard, when sickness occurs, when people fail you and when you fail yourself even, God does not abandon his children. So we are practically then encouraged and strengthened to carry on in joy and peace. We ought to embrace the Bible and the gospel from a conviction, not that it just pragmatically helps me, makes me feel better about myself, though I pray that it does. When I think when you truly see it, I think it does. But we embrace it because it's true. This is who God is. This is who we are. This is what he has done. And so, yes, when we embrace it for its truthfulness, we will find that it actually is quite pragmatic and practical for helping us accomplish the true goal of life, that God would be glorified and that we'd be found happy in him forever. Let's pray. God, I pray that this would be the grounding foundation of our life. You are the God who is there and you have spoken. And so God, I, I pray that this morning, if there's any heart in here that God, my own included, that needs reacquainted with your awesomeness. Give us eyes to see it. Father, if there's any arrogance or pride in our hearts, any pharisaical moralism in our hearts this morning that considers ourselves pretty well put together in your face and is not on our knees before you crying out for mercy, God, by your Holy Spirit, convict us of sin. Open our eyes to the truth of who you are, the truth of who we are, and then God have mercy. Give us eyes to see the truth of the gospel. That it is not our climbing up to you, it is your coming down to us. That by your grace, motivated by your love, we might be saved, forgiven of our sins, adopted into your family for our eternal joy in you. Father, plant this deep in our hearts for your glory for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.